All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This is episode two hundred and nine. Jason is lit. <laughs> I can almost speak this morning. Jason Lingren is with me as he always is, and Doctor Andy Kaufman has come back. So much going on in the world, but I'm gonna put a ray of sunshine. I am seeing a lot of people in medical situations whipping out their phone and saying this is nonsense. This is not true. Uh, common sense has fled the building. Uh, I was. Driving yesterday in the car, and a DJ made fun on the air of the beer bug. This stuff is starting not to fly. But I will add, it's one thing to recognize the nonsense. It's another thing to lose order. If you lose order, you're not doing anyone anywhere any favors. It's one thing to say, I will do what I do. It's another thing to let trouble get started because I don't think anyone needs to be told what would follow uh, and it would make situations much more difficult. Anyhow, welcome, Jason. Good morning, Crow. So what do you think, man? There's a couple institutions in our world. Um, the Christianity that founded this part of the world, all of the organizations, every type of Christianity, and the Constitution, which are two things that exist now, which if they were held up and adhered to as they once were in this country, the nonsense going on would have a tough time quick. What do you think? Those are the things that this country at least were founded on, and they need to be adhered to at all times, in my opinion. I think so. Um, you know, a moral upright compass is the thing that's missing in most of this. People have been so easily bought into things that are not acceptable, basically on fear. But I'll point out one more thing before we get Dr. Kaufman in here again. Um, there are some places that staved off central banks in this world. The one thing they have in common is they're all Islamic. The one thing about Islamic people is they stop to pray five times a day. They take it seriously. And this is the very mechanism that has held off. What is it, Jason? Some like three countries left still trying to uh, to fight off the central banking. As far as I understand it, yes. Yeah, something like that. I'm not exactly sure. I, I read it a little while ago. But the point I would make, uh, this is why you see them dismantling that part of the world. And what we're talking about, whether or not you want to agree with any religion does not matter. What we're talking about is a moral upright compass, which we had in this country when Christianity was one of the founding things. And it was not radicalized. It was not, I don't even know how to describe it. What it was, was a moral attitude. Women were respected. Smut on television was not acceptable. The Constitution founded this country. These ideas were solid in their foundation and expected to be adhered to on some level. And it slipped all the way down the line. The only reason I bring these things up is because if people took a serious look at these ideas again, they exist. They don't have to be fabricated. They don't have to be reformulated. They are here now, and they have been shown to be powerful things. In the same way, there's a Bible in every courtroom. There's a reason for that. And we are told, all of us, that this country was founded on a constitution, which would allow for none of this if adhered to. Anyhow, you ready to get Andy in here? Absolutely. Welcome, Dr. Kaufman. Thank you, Crow and Jason. It's uh, it's great to be back. I feel like I'm at home on uh, with you guys. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's we've kind we're kind of in the bizarro world. There's a shade of crazy for every color of the rainbow right now. Um, but I see a lot of people that have had enough. It's the overreach. Uh, people who might not question anything are becoming aware of the overreach, which is getting them to, to question the roots of what we're being told, which do not hold water in the light of day. They just become leaky buckets real quick, don't they? But 
where would you guys like, well, let's do our due diligence. Let's put some common sense in this world. We've done it before. So Dr. Kaufman, has a virus ever been shown anywhere in this world to cause disease or death? No, it has not. And in fact, um, according to the rules set forth by Robert Koch, the famous scientist who laid down the postulates of how to prove that an infectious agent caused disease, not even the first postulate has been satisfied for any alleged virus illness. There it is. We can all go home, guys. Everyone listen to the show. We're going to take off now. We've told you all you need to know. Uh, I'm being facetious, of course, but those are important ideas. And if you take the time to validate them, then a lot of the fear that's surrounding all of us will dissipate like so much steam on a hot day. Should we quickly cover germ theory or do you want to get into that later? Uh, well, we, we could get into it a little bit later, but I do want to mention something uh, that's very important because, you know, people are walking around being afraid of each other because they feel that this disease is contagious and they're worried about uh, spreading it from person to person. And all of these policies um, are geared towards that. And I tried really hard to find it. And other researchers that I'm collaborating with also tried. And there is no scientific uh, empirical evidence that has proved that we actually can pass diseases from one person to the other. You know, it's a hell of a thing. It's like when I was doing research one day and I read that we were all reading backwards and I wouldn't believe it. And as time went on, I began to question, is this possible? When I finally admitted to myself, I don't know, then it became possible. And as I continued on, I began to realize that most things that I had been taught in my life were in fact backwards. And I, I'm saying this because I know a lot of people that hear what you just said will, will be saying, wait a minute, there's germs everywhere in the world. We all got to wash our hands. We got to put this unhealthy hand sanitizer on us. I mean, what do you think? Yeah, well, I think that's important. And I want to remind everybody what the what the actual meaning of the word germ is, which means a budding or new growth, right? When we call germ cells are the eggs and sperm that make new organisms. So there certainly are microbes everywhere in our environment. And I'm not saying that uh, they're always safe because we all know about food poisoning. When microbes are um, working to recycle and decay uh, dead flesh, they create toxic substances that could uh, be harmful to us. But the microbes themselves, uh, there's no evidence that they invade us and cause disease. Okay, so I'll tell you what, we've got so much time here. Jason and I are going to bend over backwards. We're recording this on Saturday morning, 11 standard EST, and we're going to try to get this out on the same day. So basically, where would you like to go, Dr. Kaufman? What do you think is critical to get down? Well, I think um, I forgot to mention this to you earlier, but there was a really fascinating article put out by the uh, BMC Public Health Journal, which is a British uh, medical journal. It's a, basically a review article. So they looked for all studies uh, to show if social distancing actually reduced uh, flu transmission. So the title is Effectiveness of Workplace Social Distancing Measures in Reducing Influenza Transmission Systematic Review. And this is really important because all of our current policies uh, of house arrest and social distancing saying six feet apart are all based on this principle. And what this says uh, in this article, uh, just in the abstract, it says basically the overall risk of bias in the epidemiologic studies was serious. And in its conclusion, it said there was basically a paucity of well-designed epidemiologic studies. So what that means, an epidemiologic study is where they actually go and find actual people 
who have the flu and went to work and said, well, based on keeping people apart, did they actually uh, have a less risk of getting the flu? But they designed these studies in such a way that it basically was going to show that it was no matter what. And so in this review article, they just discounted those results because of this bias. So this is uh, an example of some of the poor and obfuscated science that we've been seeing around this pandemic, uh, trying to uh, uh, create fear more than anything else. You know, in and around the era of tricky Dick Nixon, uh, we all are aware that we lost the medical system we once had in this country and it went for profit, didn't it? Um, by Kaiser, there's a royal name for you, Permanente. I guess the intent there is that it's never going away. But since that point, I mean, what do you think, Andy? We've kind of seen where science now takes a back seat and there's these presumptions or these ideas that are put forward and they're almost forced down the pipe, regardless of what any science would say about them, to get their outcomes to the point where pretty much now you show up at a doctor's office, you've been instructed by TV to make them aware of this new drug you just saw an ad for because you're interested in it. And the pharmaceutical companies pushing all these things, which really don't cure anything. We've seen a departure of the ideas of uh, empirical science, haven't we? Absolutely. And you know, uh, doctors who are practicing, they're, they're very busy. They have to see a lot of patients in order to generate enough revenue to keep afloat. And they don't really have time to look at these articles. So what they do is there are these services, um, various uh, ones that will send you uh, articles, and they'll basically just be like a, a summary of the highlights or the headlines. And that's what most doctors read is just the headlines or the conclusion statement. And as I've been uh, more and more reading these articles, what I see is that the actual results that they're find don't actually match up with the conclusions at the end. So for example, they might find that uh, there's a particular uh, drug that um, is not really effective after they go back and look at the data more comprehensively. But instead of at the end in the conclusion saying, it's our recommendation that this drug should be taken off the market, they say that basically something like, well, it still may be useful, uh, just maybe consider it a little bit more before you use it. So they're basically telling you to use things that have been proven not to work, and they never make any reasonable statements about telling people, you know, don't ever use this again because it doesn't work. So it's really incredible that in a paper, the, the title of the paper and the conclusions of the paper don't actually match with the actual experimental results that they have. And this is just one of many techniques to keep uh, doctors in the dark so that they keep uh, using the very profitable drugs and procedures, uh, which uh, even at the detriment of their patients. Well, there's, there's a big difference. And before I throw this back over to Jason, I would point out when I was young in the 60s, there was an idea that a doctor was practicing his art. Um, somewhere along the line, that was not the presumption anymore. Um, it relates, of course, to our going to profit, but it almost feels like doctors are wholly under the gun because they're going to be directed by where they're working now. And you will do these things and the liability is here, so you can't do these other things almost removing the idea that a doctor can practice in any meaningful way because he's bound by corporate policy. I mean, what do you think? Yeah, well, you're exactly right. So in hospital systems, I think this is the uh, most obvious 
And what happens is there are two major mechanisms uh, that they use to control what the doctors do. And uh, one of them is through the electronic medical records. Because when you, when you use electronic, it used to be that you would just handwrite a note and you would have to decide how to diagnose, how to treat, and you'd have to remember what's important. And you maybe carried around a few little reference books in, you know, in your white coat that you could use to look things up. Um, but really, you had the autonomy to figure this out. With the electronic health record systems, by the way, which is the number one cause of physician burnout, as they've been implemented uh, in mass to hospital setting and now to ambulatory settings as well, they're menu-driven. So it's not like you typing a Word document. You have to go through all these menus, and it basically tells you, do you want to order this? Do you want to consider this? And it guides you through these um, practice guidelines that are things that are decided by like hospital committees and other interested parties that are not necessarily even contained physicians. And so you feel basically a pressure to do this because why would it come up on the system if it weren't important? And then you're always operating in fear as a doctor. If I don't follow the standard of care, I will be liable and I could be sued. And every doctor knows another doctor who's been sued, and we've seen it ruin that person. It's extremely traumatic. They can't ever practice the same after that, many of them. They just are always uh, in fear and very hesitant and tentative with how they approach the patients. Um, the other main uh, control mechanism is the hospital formulary. So the hospitals basically negotiate with the drug companies uh, to get you know some kind of special pricing or incentives to have specific drugs on the formulary. And of course, doctors are free to prescribe any drug, even if it's not on the formulary, but they are strongly encouraged and advised to stick to those drugs uh, exclusively. And, and when there's a doctor in a hospital system who goes astray from that uh, directive, um, beyond a certain threshold, they're, they're going to receive some censorship from the hospital administration. They're going to be directed to uh, not do that because it, it affects the hospital's bottom line. So this basically uh, funnels them into all prescribing uh, the same drugs and the same treatments, even if it may not be their first choice to address a specific uh, illness. With a digital record to boot. Anyhow, Jason, I'm going to hand you the bowling ball. But before you go for the strike, why don't you see if you can figure out how to pick up that ball without making the devil horn sign? Uh, sorry for the bad pun. Go ahead, man. Well, Dr. Kaufman, from what I understand, just to address some of the concerns that I've seen posted around, let's just start with doctors working in hospitals. From what I understand, they're worked for an extreme amount of time and are very possibly working from a state of near exhaustion, at least some of the time. Is that true? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, when I was in medical school, actually, I was very interested in this area of uh, medical errors based on uh, people being fatigued from overworking. And uh, I was approaching this as a medical student uh, planning to go into my residency because, you know, I didn't want to be facing that situation personally. And as I looked into it, there were several studies uh, showing increased rates of errors and not just errors in the hospital, but actually like people driving home after these long shifts and getting into accidents because they can't even operate a motor vehicle. So I've heard stories and seen reports even of surgeons falling asleep in the middle of a surgical procedure. So this could be, you know, quite dangerous. And uh, they instill this work ethic into doctors and it, it, it's almost a, a way to 
acculturate them to just keep going and keep going and not question things, do the work, do the work, you got to save people, that kind of thing to the point of exhaustion. And uh, many people sort of almost enjoy this in some kind of a masochistic way. On one occasion, when I was in medical school on a surgical uh, rotation, I was required to, uh, I, I had to do an overnight call. So I worked a full day, then an overnight call, then worked another full day. And we had to wait for the senior resident to come and round with us before we could go home. And by, and he, we found out later that he was actually uh, went to the gym to work out and was having a nice lunch with some friends and just didn't feel like coming to round with us. Uh, I worked 39 straight hours uh, during that shift. And uh, the last eight hours was waiting for that resident to uh, finish his day so he could come uh, around with us and let us go. And it, it was an extremely, extremely unpleasant experience. And it didn't do anything to help uh, the patients in the hospital at all. So taking a look at trauma-based mind control, that concept... It seems that people who become doctors are subjected to situations where they're going to do what the system tells them because they've just been subjected to so many situations that will beat them down. I mean, after all, doctors are human beings just like the rest of us, hopefully more intelligent and diligent than a lot of people, but still human nonetheless. So given what the current situation, they're probably going to go along with the program because they're just of the mindset to do what they're told from the top down. Would that be accurate? Yeah, I, I think that's pretty much true. And uh, you make me think of this uh, thing that every medical student has experienced, and uh, we refer to it as pimping. And this is when you, um, you know, you're a student or a resident and you're doing something with an attending physician. That's like a full licensed physician. They're usually uh, professors at the medical school where you're at. Um, and surgeons are notoriously uh, bad for this. And uh, so like in the operating room, like for a medical student, it's super exciting if you get to participate in some meaningful way, like make an incision or suture up the wound at the end or or uh, be involved in a critical part of the operation. Uh, usually they just want you to stand there and hold a clamp, you know, for four hours. And so what happens is that they at the beginning of the procedure, many times the surgeon will come in and ask you some question, and this is the pimping, and it'll be a really tough question about like anatomy or some little bit of information. And if you answer right away, then you get rewarded and you get to help. And But it's, it's so hard to answer because they pick the really <laughs> tough, tough questions that you have to just spend hours and hours and hours to prepare for if you're going to have a chance of getting it right. So most of the time you don't get it right. And then you're basically shamed and you're, you're relegated to do a menial task. And uh, I mean, sometimes like I've experienced this where they would, they would just say that, oh, you broke sterile field when you didn't do anything. And they'd make you leave the operating room, re-scrub, re-gown, uh, re-glove and come back in. And of course you're like, when you do that, you're coming back in and you're like looking down in shame. And so this is the kind of uh, thing over and over again uh, that causes this kind of trauma and makes you just uh, surrender to the authority. Okay, yeah, good to know. Uh, hazing by the surgeon that's got you on the table. But anyhow, let's uh, let's talk a minute about some of the things that are buzzing around the the interwebs. I've been hearing from a lot of sources and seeing stuff from people who are in medical situations that they've been directed to attribute all the deaths to this virus nonsense. 
and that all other causes are secondary. Um, have you heard anything like this or that relates in any way? Yes, absolutely. And um, actually, I don't even think you you don't need to rely on any anecdotal information uh, to see this because I went and looked at the guidance from various uh, important health agencies on how to record uh, the death certificate if the death is due to the coronavirus or not. So I'll, I'll direct you to actually three different documents. One is uh, from the uh, New York Health Department. It's on ny.gov, and it's called Guidance for Certifying COVID-19 Deaths. It was released March 4th, 2020. So I'm going to quote from that just one sentence, and then I'll get on to the next document. All right, and I quote, and this is right in the introductory paragraph. It is important to emphasize that coronavirus disease 2019 or COVID-19 should be reported on the death certificate for all decedents where the disease is caused or is assumed to have caused or contributed to death. So in other words, if they assume the death was caused by COVID, they should put it on the death certificate. And the death certificate is supposed to represent the true cause of death, not the assumed cause. On the death certificate instructions itself, it doesn't say anything about assumed cause of death. So this is going to be a major, major source of error. The next document comes from, it's actually an article on NPR News, which is uh, talking about uh, Minnesota and how they are instructed to report it there. And basically what they said is that if they find someone who is undiagnosed and died from any kind of respiratory problems, and I want to remind the viewers that uh, we've already had more than 30,000 deaths from just from influenza. And if we add pneumonia, regular old pneumonia, which is you know commonly referred to as bacterial pneumonia, it would be a much higher number. And all of those people would die of respiratory problems. So what they're saying here is that if they die of respiratory problems, do not perform the COVID-19 test post-mortem. Just basically assume it's from COVID. <sighs> yeah, I, I don't... <laughs> It's unreal um, because it's like it's like the government thing, you know. All the people watch the government, assuming that they understand something about the Constitution. Matter of fact, we just had a damn president who wasn't helping anyone, called Obama, who was supposed to be a constitutional expert. And you you get in a position in this country where you're looking at officialdom, thinking, okay, they know what they're doing. But what you're pointing out here is basically the underlying fraud of it all. Um, it doesn't hold up to scrutiny. And as an example of this, early on years ago, we started to notice that all the images we were getting from NASA didn't pass muster. Jason and I went at it to the point where when we had pointed out the problems that were indisputably demonstrating that all this imagery we had grown up with was fake, they started pulling down things from the server and replacing it with doctored up ones. But there's even a bit of that going on. Every time you turn on the TV, they got this blue supposed virus orb with all the little red things on it. And that's an artist's rendering. That is not an image of anything real in this world, right? Absolutely. So we can draw from a conclusion that there are problems with everything when the very image they're using to push these ideas can be pulled into the light of day and show that it's manufactured. And we did cover this on one of the last episodes, whether what is called a virus, which if I'm not mistaken, is basically like a flake of protein. Would that be a fair description? 
Well, I'd say it's a little bit more complicated than that, but it's uh, basically something that comes from your own body and not something that invades and causes disease. And my my opinion about what uh, a virus really is, is it's actually your body's response to disease and something that will help you heal. But I want to mention something about the, uh, the pictures that you were talking about, because a lot of people have sent me uh, this article from the National Institutes of Health called New Images of Novel Coronavirus SARS-CoV-2 Now Available. And it has some really pretty 3D pictures that are colorized in there. And so um, I had some people on my research team trying to find the original publications where these images came from. And the only thing that they were able to find is a Flickr account that has all of the coronavirus pictures. <laughs> so, so we're talking about a Flickr uh, account as the source of the NIH's information. So th this is just incredible to me. Uh, you know, it's so hard to believe. And, you know, getting back to the death certificate reporting, I think the most damning document is actually from the vital, it's, uh, from the CDC itself, and it's called the Guidance for Certifying Deaths Due to Coronavirus 2019. And this was just issued uh, this month. So it's only a few days old. And um, it's just pretty incredible, some of the quotes in here. So I'll read you one. It is acceptable to report COVID-19 on a death certificate as probable or presumed. Okay, so in other words, they don't really know. They just uh, are making a guess and they're going to blame it on it. And they also confirm that, say, ideally testing for COVID-19 should be conducted, but it's acceptable to report COVID-19 on a death certificate without confirmation. And they also talk about what's known as comorbidities. So in other words, other serious illnesses that the person has that are contributing to death or something like that. And they kind of spell out that like if someone has COPD, right, which is uh, a lung disease that kills many people and many, you know, most people when they have COPD, they die, they actually die of pneumonia because if there's some additional insult to their lungs, there's no extra reserve capacity. So it puts them over the threshold and they, they can't uh, survive. And what it's saying here is that in that situation, if they suspect that it's COVID-19, that they're supposed to only put COVID-19 as the cause of death and put the COPD in this other part two of the death certificate, which is uh, essentially just um, significant conditions contributing to death. And so when they do the statistical reporting, they're, those are not going to be counted. The, these is going to be counted as a COVID-19 death. And they even give a case scenario here of an 86-year-old woman. Um, and it's just, it's not too long. Um, so maybe I can read it, but she, she basically was uh, suffered from a stroke three years ago. And then uh, five days before she died, she was supposedly exposed to an ill family member who later was diagnosed with COVID-19. But she didn't want to go to the hospital and didn't get testing. And she ended up dying at home. And they're telling you in that situation, you should say that COVID-19 caused the death on the death certificate. Well, if I'm not mistaken, uh, recent coverage that you've participated in shows that it's not possible to get a test to show that you were COVID anything positive. Is that correct? That's absolutely correct. And even the, the CDC itself uh, put out uh, information on their website 
cautioning about the accuracy of the test. And they they brought up actually another bias that I didn't even think of before, which is that, you know, the theory of how a virus causes illness would be that the the virus can stay dormant um, in your body. And if it becomes activated, it basically replicates and then millions and billions of virus particles are uh, produced and they cause the damage to the tissue. But the the test, the PCR test is qualitative. So it only says uh, virus present or not present. It doesn't tell you the amount. So it could be only like less than 10 copies of the genetic material, or it could be 10 trillion copies and the test would be positive either way. So they made a bold statement and said, if there's a positive test in an ill individual, it does not prove that the illness is caused by COVID-19. So this gets confusing for people. I know it's gonna, um, because on the one hand, you're showing all these reasons why a thing doesn't exist. And then you're using the name for the thing you just pointed out doesn't exist. So <laughs> let, let me be perfectly clear here. Do viruses exist as described? No, they do not. Do viruses cause disease? There is no evidence to support that. Are what is called viruses, which by the way, I looked at the image, it looks like a little flake of something, it looks nothing like the artist rendering COVID you see on your nightly news, but is what is being called a virus, is it alive? No. Does it have uh, its own DNA? Well, uh, it, has, it has genetic material. Uh, some of these alleged viruses have DNA and some of them have RNA, like the COVID virus. Um, but the origin of this RNA, um, in my opinion, is from the host. So in other words, it's from us. Okay. Lastly, before I get Jason back in here, does what's called a virus eat, poop, and replicate? No. So that's why you can say that it's not alive because it does not carry out the essential life functions in, that, in order to be qualified as a living organism. All right. There it is, man. If people look at those simple last couple of things we said to verify it, then you know something important. Jason, you want to grab the, the helm here? So the one question I see a lot of people saying is, so what's making everybody sick? But the first thing I would say before we even have you answer that is, are that many people sick beyond what's normally going on at this time of year? Absolutely not. Um, according to all of the uh, groups who measure excess mortality, and what that is, is basically from year to year, they monitor how many people die. World, uh, you know, It could be worldwide. Many of these uh, groups do a certain region because it's uh, quite a lot of data uh, to uh, churn through. So they basically start on January 1st, and every day they tally up how many people have died. And they've done this for years, so they have you know, the average rates. And they're monitoring this to see if there is a spike in excess mortality, then there should be some investigation to find out if, if there's some cause that could be addressed through public health measures. And uh, all the uh, bodies that do this uh, kind of reporting and analysis so far have not found any uh, spike in excess mortality based on this pandemic. So I'm not ruling out the possibility that I, I certainly acknowledge that people are sick and dying because people are always sick and dying, right? Uh, in fact, in the United States, uh, the average uh, daily death rate is uh, close to 8,000 people a day. So, so lots of people are dying all the time. Um, and I'm not ruling out the possibility that 
in certain geographic areas, perhaps in clusters, that there may be some type of new uh, or novel illness. I, I suspect that most likely it's from some kind of toxic exposure, which could be a variety of things, including substances or certain various types of radiation. But there's no overall evidence that even if these clusters exist, that it is above average levels uh, for any given year. Do doctors get trained on quarantine procedures? <laughs> well, you know, I've, I've definitely mentioned this a couple of times, um, that quarantine is isolating people who are sick so that they don't spread an illness to healthy people. But the policies that we have now with this, uh, you know, so-called shelter in place is for healthy people. So in my opinion, this is nothing to do with quarantine. This is house arrest. And almost certainly unconstitutional, I would add. In the state I'm in, the damn governor stood up the other day and said she was going to send troops door to door to look for New Yorkers. I kid you not. Then, like clockwork, the governor of New York stood up and said, hey, governor of Rhode Island, that's illegal. Then the next morning, the governor of Rhode Island woke up and said, no, it's not. We're doing it. This is the kind of nonsense I'm talking about. For some reason, we've become afraid of, of perceived authority. And it's the other damn way around. When I was young in this country, every cop car said to protect and serve. At some point, that changed, if you're following. How could it possibly be constitutional, a fraction of these orders that we're seeing? It's one thing for a municipality to shut down a park, which they probably rightfully have control of. It's another one to impede your freedom when there is no visible reason. You're not sick. As a matter of fact, there are people who have gone all over the country looking for a single dead body or a single sick person. And it's pretty clear at this point that what we're seeing is much ado about nothing. But Jason, I want to get a couple more things into the first hour uh, that matter. What do you think? Is germ theory that thing or do you have a better idea? I think germ theory would be great. But before we do that, the procedures that are going on in hospitals that people are reporting that they're empty, is this a normal thing that would go on under these sort of situations if indeed it was a real situation? Yeah, well, Jason, that's an excellent question. And I have to say that we've really never had a response like this to any situation that I'm aware of, uh, you know, in the history of uh, public health. So on the scale. So I'm not really sure what to expect, but it certainly there are still sick people out there with the regular old things that everybody, you know, has like heart failure and diabetes, strokes and heart attacks, uh, kidney disease, peripheral vascular disease. So these people need you know, the hospital services or they rely upon it in our system. And if there's empty hospitals, then, I, you know, I don't understand what's going to be happening to these people uh, if they're prohibited from going into the hospital. It just, I've never seen an empty hospital in my career. And I've worked in very rural areas and I've worked in major metropolitan centers. And uh, most commonly, the condition is that there's a bed shortage and people get backed up in the emergency department and you have to wait for beds. I've never seen a condition where there are a plethora of empty beds in a hospital in my entire career. What were you pointing at, Jason? The, the kind of idea, go die at home? Was that the underlying? Well, a lot of people are going and doing what journalists used to do and finding situations where hospitals don't seem to be crowded. Right. Don't seem to be problems at all, in fact. 
And I've had people say other things that they're under different administrative procedures right now. And I'm just wondering, is that the reason why things don't look crowded? Or is most of this just bunk and hype? Well, I'm glad you asked that because I actually have been in contact with um, an EMT from a, a large metropolitan area. And I was informed uh, by that person that in a, a, a major suburb of the city, that there was a large hospital of 450 beds. And, um, you know, they told me that uh, they've been to that hospital many times and uh, it's never empty. And what they've done at that hospital, the administration has taken 30 of the 450 beds, so less than 10%, and has dedicated those beds only to people with general illnesses. So normally this time of year, there might be 400 to 450 people with all of those kind of general illnesses in the hospital. Now, less than 10% of them have access to the hospital. And by the way, all the other beds are reserved for only virus-related patients. So then the person further told me that they've had a major increase in calls for CPR. And uh, basically, people are dying at home. And it, it seems uh, pretty obvious that these people would have died in the hospital, most likely. And now they're dying at home instead. And it's very disturbing uh, for the EMTs because, you know, they're just going dead body after dead body. They're not used to it. And it creates this fear and this idea that, oh, my God, this virus is really out of control and they get scared about it. And in fact, um, in, in this department, there were thousands of people that were out sick and, uh, you know, I, I can't help. And, you know, the thinking among other people there is that they basically decided they didn't want to come to work and risk getting this virus because they're too scared. And then further, and this is really astonishing. I was told that their policy as far as how they they run a CPR code was totally changed. So it used to be that when the EMTs get there, they're kind of like the first responders and they can only do a limited number of things, uh, which does not include using uh, uh, drugs for advanced cardiac life support. And it used to be that they would do CPR until the paramedics got there, which who were able to do the advanced procedures. And then they would send telemetry data to the hospital and there would be a doctor reviewing that. And the doctor would be the one to guide them what to do and the one to tell them when they could pronounce the person dead. And sometimes this took hours uh, to carry out. And the EMTs were not allowed to pronounce anyone dead except for certain obvious situations. Uh, for example, if the body were decapitated. So they've been given a directive now that uh, they can pronounce death themselves and that they're supposed to stop CPR after a really short time. So basically, the policy is to not try very hard to save these people's lives. And it's, it's really, really troubling to see this coming down from the higher ups. It's like we've entered into bizarro world. And on the tail of Jason's question, it opened up a whole, as you were speaking there, is it legal to turn away a person who needs medical care from a hospital? In San Diego, when I was still there, uh, this caused endless trouble because all these people who weren't insured would have, by, they had no other choice, they'd show up at the ER. And so the ERs were always being inundated. The underlying assumption and the underlying idea for anyone who grew up in the place we used to call America was that if a human being needed medical care, the hospital could not turn them away. Have we somehow made fake laws that now make it fine 
to turn people away? Are these corporate policies that are infringing on the inherent rights of a human being? I mean, what do you think? Yeah, I think they are most likely corporate policies. And, you know, in healthcare and in, and in and actually almost all major industries in this country, um, they make a risk benefit decision. They say, well, what's what do we if we take this person, we have a financial loss to treat them versus if we don't and they sue us or there's a bad, bad outcome, what's our liability? And they do like an actuarial analysis on this. And if it's more profitable to turn people away or to continue to make a product that is faulty and causes harm, they often do that rather than correcting the situation. So there may be that kind of thinking among the hospital administrators leading to these policy decisions. It's basically, the, it's literally the bizarro world where a place that exists because the human beings exist, uh, somehow the corporate concerns have outweighed the right of a human being in some bizarre world that we now appear to be entering. Well, we I, have- I would like to mention the new antibody test if, uh, if you were open to that. I've I've been receiving a ton of questions in the last 24 hours, uh, letting me know that the FDA has given authorization for a new COVID-19 test. And I think you know that I've been very critical of the PCR test uh, because of the error rate and the false positive rate. And one of the things that's very critical to that is that the test was never compared to a gold standard. And a gold standard would be where they actually isolated and purified an infectious agent directly from a sick person and would be unable to isolate that from a healthy person. And all diagnostic tests have to be compared to that in order to calculate how accurate they are. So that has never been done. So any new test that comes out also has not been compared to a gold standard. So let me talk about antibody tests in general, because it seems that they've allowed antibody tests to explain uh, two sides of a coin. So we are generally taught that antibodies uh, to a specific uh, alleged virus or other uh, infectious agent actually tell us that we have immunity to that infection. So for example, when the FDA approves uh, a new vaccine, one of the important things that the company has to demonstrate in order to get approval is that they have to show that they administered the vaccine and then the recipient made antibodies to the illness because the antibodies confer the immunity. So basically, the antibody test tells you that you're immune to a disease. Now, somewhere along the line, they just flipped this all around and decided that an antibody test could also tell you if you were sick with the same disease rather than being immune to it. And so they did this with the HIV test was one of the first ones. And so now they have come out with an antibody test for COVID-19, same thing. So does it, you know, um, by their own reasoning, should it say that actually it means you're immune to the, to the COVID-19 or does it mean that you're ill with the COVID-19? So, A lot of people are saying that this uh, new test is approved by the FDA, but that is not accurate. What it is, is it has been authorized for use by the FDA, which is an emergency uh, situation um, that they allow under certain circumstances like this, even even if they're under false pretenses. And I just want to read this one uh, statement because uh, the FDA issued a document on April 1st um, alerting everyone Uh, that they are authorizing this new test. And here's what they say. 
based on the totality of scientific evidence available to the FDA, it is reasonable to believe that your product may be effective in diagnosing COVID-19 and that the known and potential benefits of your product when used blah, 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 outweigh the risks. So they're saying, we don't know if this is measuring anything, but we believe it may be effective in diagnosing it. And they're approving it based on that. And all of the statistics are going to be recorded based upon the, that result that has so much uncertainty. Isn't this the classic bait and switch? I mean, this is what drives me insane about trying to have these conversations. We've stated the viruses don't exist as described. If that premise can be shown, then why the hell does it matter what test anyone comes up with to prove a virus, which has already been shown not to cause death or disease. In other words, there's a premise here that's been laid down as the foundation that a virus can kill you, that a virus is infectious, that a virus is alive, it can replicate, it can be transmitted. And yet we've shown that that's not true. A virus is misdescribed. So all these other kind of test things that are openly saying probability, in other words, that just show it's just another theory. It's an idea. Um, isn't it just bait and switch to get us away from the main premise that the underlying cause for all of this madness in the world is based on, can we call it fraud? Yeah, you're absolutely right. And this is the uh, the point I've been really trying to drive home because all of the people that have been uh, challenging some of the things I've been saying are, are all pointing out things that are based upon the underlying assumption that germ theory is correct. And so without that premise, everything else just falls apart and is meaningless. So it's really important to, to have that burden of proof on, uh, the burden should be on proving that these infectious agents cause the disease. And if that is not met, everything built upon that false fraudulent assumption it is uh, completely worthless. Jason and I have done quite a bit of work around the word theory. A theory is just an idea. And the longer a theory exists, the more unlikely that idea is in the first place. And after some reasonable amount of time, it should be thrown out because a law is a proven thing, an empirically proven thing that can be done over and over and over to come up with the same result. It is not deniable. It is nature showing you this is true. But even when we say the words germ theory, in fact, what we're saying is someone had an idea that's been around a hell of a long time now, and no one can seem to prove it. But Jason, you want to take us the distance here in the, the first hour? Where is the system, the mainstream system, getting it wrong, in your opinion, Dr. Kaufman? Uh, besides everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> All right, there it is, man. Take one. Done. I mean... It you know, it, it's really, it's this point that the fundamental premise that all of this infectious disease is based upon, and, you know, quite a lot of medicine is based around infection, and even all of these other, you know, supposedly mysterious disease like autoimmunity and type 1 diabetes, there is a lot of research trying to find some kind of virus or infection, right? So it is the major paradigm that uh, covers all of allopathic medicine, that there is some uh, warfare situation where there is an evil, dangerous agent invading your body and, it, and it's alive and that you have to fight it and otherwise it's going to get you and we need to all be afraid of it. However, it's, it's just simply that this has never been proven by any empirical evidence. So we're, we're coming in on hour one. I wanted to go back on germ theory. We're 
probably going to have to do that an hour or two. But I don't know if you agree with me, Dr. Kaufman. And usually when I've looked at a thing long enough that I'm pretty sure about it, I'm blunt um, because we seem to have lost the adults in the room. And I mean a crap load of adults. All this fear, this childlike fear uh, about a thing that can be shown not to exist. All these rights, when we have things like the Constitution, where basically people have been put on house arrest. By what authority? It's by strong arming. It's by fear. It's by because we told you to. And yet the same tenets that ever made this place we call America great still exist in this world. And so what we're seeing is the same thing that I just commiserated with you a moment ago. Now we're going to have to talk about the latest bait and switch they've done because they've got a new test. But it doesn't erase the fact that the thing they're testing for doesn't damn exist. And when you come out and say these things, it's just a few of us here doing what journalists were supposed to be doing originally. But now we know we can turn on the television and every damn station will be running the same nonsense because they're all controlled by very few corporations. And so now we're in the position of either standing up and being adults, and I mean damn adults, facing commiserating odds, facing fearful odds because you know it's the right damn thing. Here we are. Here we are right now. Is there any right that could be pointed to to have put everyone on house arrest? I'm just asking. Is there any proof that a virus can cause the fearful things that we're being told it could. I'm just asking. And by the way, are there any adults in the room who will take the time to educate themselves and use the common sense that the good Lord above gave us all? Dr. Kaufman, we're coming down to the wire here for hour one. Is there anything you'd like to get in? Yeah, well, I, I mean, I have actually asked uh, because there have been some scientists and epidemiologists that have you know, reached out and tried to give some contravening evidence to what I'm saying, but it's always been at a, a higher level. Like they never were able to offer proof at the fundamental level that shows that there is a virus that causes illness. And, you know, and I've, I've tried to ask them, you know, can you address this? And whenever I do that, I, all I get back is ad hominem. But there is a ray of hope because um, I, I'm feeling a sense that there are more and more people questioning things, thinking things are fishy. And when I went to the farmer's market uh, this morning, it was much more crowded than a week ago. And uh, one of the people that I know there that I, I buy microgreens from on a regular basis, and uh, he has some knowledge of uh, Chinese medicine, that that he knows what's going on. And we were talking to each other right out in public in front of everyone at appropriate close distances. We were shaking hands, we were laughing and cutting it up. And we felt so moved that we had a big hug right in the middle of the market. And I know people were looking at us and I hope that I was able to send the message to not be afraid of each other. If we're going to be afraid of everyone, of anyone, it's going to be these draconian martial law practices that, that you're talking about. That's what we really need to be concerned about, not making each other sick. You know, a guy wrote a sci-fi book in the 50s where he told everyone the damn truth. Fear is the mind killer. And I'm sorry, I see a world gone absolutely infantile because of fear with no evidence to even support a reason to be afraid in the first place but that's not even really the the point 
when I was young, the adults in the room acted like adults. And somehow over all this time, it's been beat out of us. But I would point out another thing, Dr. Kaufman, this is not the first run we've seen with the provably fake test for a virus. This happened during the AIDS thing. Doctors started showing up quite a bit after the fact saying, hey, man, these tests are a scam. You can test a person one day, they're positive, test it the next day, and they're not. And so they started looking and they did exactly what you did with the test we're currently looking at, which is part of the frustration in trying to address this in a meaningful way. Because to me, all those tests are simply a bait and switch now. It's like, look over here at the right hand. Don't look at the foundation of all this. Look at the right hand. The right hand has this test. Look at all these things the test does. We're claiming this is a test. No, man. You're claiming a test for a thing that provably doesn't exist. And that is the underlying thing. So every time we come on and we say the V word, we're almost undermining our own discussion. And it's just very frustrating. Jason, I think we're right to the wire. Anything you want to get in? I'm going to say what I always say, folks. Keep your higher mindedness about you because this ride is not over yet. No, man, there's going to be another shoe that drops. There has to be. There's too many people that are catching on. Dr. Kaufman, I'm imagining you're inundated at this point. Do you want to give out any kind of contact information or would you prefer just to show up in comments when this goes live tonight? I am launching a website early this week, the the week of Good Friday. I hope to get it out by Monday or Tuesday. So that address is Andrew Kaufman. That's A-N-D-R-E-W-K-A-U-F as in Frank, M-A-N-M-D, like medical doctor, dot com. So please reach me uh, there and I will have a way that uh, you can uh, get information about consultations. I will have frequently asked uh, questions so it could address a lot of your questions and I would love to hear from everyone. That would be a good Friday if we got a website in this world that had some common sense, which is sorely needed now. But in closing, I'm going to say this. Is everyone aware out there that this magical comet, it's green, by the way, Before the 2000s, comets were never green. They're all green now, and many of them don't look like comets, but it's called CV-19. I kid you not. 19 is also a number that represents the the metatonic cycle of the moon. The goddess from Greek mythology associated with that is the twin sister of Apollo known as Artemis, or more recently, Diana, goddess of the hunt. So as we all queue up on Easter, which I will remind everyone is exactly one lunar month past the spring equinox, pulled to the nearest day of the sun, Apollo, Artemis, the goddess of the hunt and the moon, will be showing us all it's Easter. That Easter egg hunt could come to mean something different this year. I don't have a crystal ball, but I'm just saying, are people beginning to catch on here? We are in such dire need of people with a moral upright compass who will not bow down to nonsense. Adults in the room who can guide those who don't know whether to turn left or right. If there was ever a time, it's now, man. Anyhow, I hope you'll join us all for hour two at crow777radio.com, C-R-R-O-W-777radio.com. That is the only Crow 777 site. There are fraud sites that are doing bad things, just to let you know. We're going to cover a bunch of things that matter in hour two. We just got to get what we can in hour one here. So please join us at crow777radio.com for hour two with Dr. Andy Kaufman, who basically is standing against some fearful odds to be a doctor and saying the things he's saying. There it is, man. Cheers. 